Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week... Businesses leave Catalonia in the face of political uncertainty. What's a problem is when the law doesn't seem to be respected. So he said, you know, when there's a break of the rule of law, when you can't trust that the laws are going to be respected, then your trust in the whole system breaks and you, and you rush away. And the Jedi effect. Can the remake save Hollywood? It'll definitely do well. The question is, will it do as well as The Force Awakens, episode 7 or 207 of the Star Wars saga? But first, the price of a Bitcoin, the famous cryptocurrency, has rocketed from under $2,000 six months ago to more than 17000 as we speak. Trading in Bitcoin futures began on the Chicago Board Options Exchange this week, and the CME Group launches its own futures next week. The meteoric rises are drawing in waves of speculative money. So should we all be piling in? Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, joins me now. Hello, Philip. Hello, Simon. Uh, I mean, obviously, because you write about it, I don't suppose you're allowed to invest in Bitcoin. But is that a matter of regret to you or are you feeling rather relieved to be on the sidelines? I suppose it's a matter of regret that you didn't get into something that's gone up a lot, whatever it is, whether it's Bitcoin or houses in Manhattan or uh, gold when it was $35 an ounce. But the difficulty about Bitcoin is you know that this is an illiquid asset which is being widely advertised and being promoted on the internet. So as a journalist, your the hairs on your back of your neck start to stand up and you start to think about other events in your life that have been the same. And I remember back in the dot-com boom of the late 1990s, you equally had exponential rises in share prices where it's very difficult to understand what was going on. And what was going on was that people were getting very excited and piling in to an asset where there was a limited supply. And when that happens, it's very difficult to tell where the price will stop. Of course, then it turned out to be a bubble. Uh, And then, as now, you heard the same argument. You always hear that this is different. You don't understand. There's something qualitatively different about this particular boom. Uh, Do you take that with, with Bitcoin? Is it different? I think you have to distinguish between the technology of the blockchain, which is a very interesting development, this distributed ledger whereby uh, the whole chain has to agree the transaction has occurred and that makes it more secure. That's something that might be extremely useful in future. And the idea that Bitcoin is a currency that is the equivalent of digital gold that is going to sweep away Uh, the dollar and paper currencies issued by central banks. I think that second possibility is pretty remote. But will the technological uses of Bitcoin and blockchain uh, expand in the future? Yes. How do you translate that into a value for an individual Bitcoin is much more difficult to work out. And uh, one way, I suppose, of looking at it is investors regard this rather like an option 
on a future very valuable technology. So they're putting down a little bit now. The potential value might be huge or it might be nothing. But uh, you're willing to take the risk of losing your $16,000, $17,000 on the hope that it's going to be worth a lot more in future, um, just as you're willing to buy an option in the hope that it will expire in the money and you'll make your fortune. But is there any actual limit on how high it could go? Presumably, nothing that you have said means that it can't go on rising indefinitely so long as people keep piling in believing in it. Yes. History suggests, though, that that process does come to an end, that there will be people who want to take their money out. There may be people even now who are promoting it, who are promoting it so they can take their money out. And the whole mysterious ownership of this uh, currency makes it very difficult to know whether that's going on. If you think about it, we know that a lot of the Bitcoin are being mined out in China. We know that uh, Russian interests are involved. There's a report that North Korea has mined lots of Bitcoin. So it's, it's a fairly shady process. And I don't know who's selling the Bitcoin that people are buying in the market at the moment, and, and, and nor do you. When the an asset has no obvious intrinsic value that you can determine, that means that everybody can put a value on it that they, they like. And, you know, yes, you're right. 100,000 is as plausible as 10,000 is as plausible as 100. Maybe the real value of it is how much it costs to create an individual Bitcoin, which is perhaps 70 or $80. But that would be seen by many people as entirely pessimistic. But the key question is, if it's going to be this great global currency, would you want to use it to buy a car or a house or something? Well, you, if you think it's going to go up 40% in the next few months, you're not going to want to do that, are you? And if you're on the other side of the transaction, and you think, well, this is a bubble and it's going to collapse in price, you're not going to want to accept it either. So I think the idea that it's going to be this great currency that replaces all the others is far-fetched. You mentioned the cost of producing a single Bitcoin, $70. That, that's the cost of the electricity. Yes. Which is enormous yes. and going up all the time. Does that not itself impose some sort of constraint on how high it can go? You would have thought so. Uh, there's a very interesting website about this Digi Economist, which uh, looks at the cost of producing a Bitcoin and indeed the electricity use. A week or so ago, I think it was Morocco's energy was the equivalent it was being used. And now it's Serbia. And if it keeps going, you know, maybe one day it'll be a big developed country and, and people will start to think, is this really a useful use of mankind's energy resources to go producing a sort of electronic nebulous currency? So that may eventually put a constraint on it. The other thing to think about is there are lots of digital currencies. You don't have to think that Bitcoin is the only one. There's Ethereum, there's Litecoin and so on. And maybe one of the others will turn out to be more successful just as back in the dot-com boom. It's not that we aren't buying things on the internet. It's just that the number of companies that were going to actually succeed at making things through the internet were not obvious back in 1999-2000. Google, for example, was not quoted on the stock market. Facebook hadn't been invented at that point. So it's not always the pioneers of an industry that turn out to be long-term winners. Philip Coggan, thank you very much. Well, do you agree with Philip? Are you worried, confused, bemused by Bitcoin? Or maybe have you cashed out and are you laughing all your way to the bank? We'd love to know. Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, businesses in Catalonia are being hurt by the political chaos in the region.
Catalans go to the polls next week in regional elections, and with some candidates in exile and others running their campaigns from prison, it's certainly going to be interesting. Businesses, however, are not sticking around. They're voting with their feet and moving their legal headquarters out of Catalonia. Adam Roberts is our European business correspondent. Hello, Adam. Hello. How big an exodus are we talking about? How serious is this? Well, it is pretty big on paper, and in reality, it's also becoming fairly big. So over 2,900 firms have now moved their legal headquarters, which sounds like a lot. And, and actually, these are the biggest firms. These are the big financial firms, especially the banks, the insurance companies, but also some big industrial firms such as cement companies and, and others. So there's a large number of companies and business leaders who are fed up and moving their headquarters. What exactly are they fed up about? I mean, obviously, nobody likes political uncertainty, but what are the specific worries? Well, it depends a little bit which industry you're part of. But the, the head of one cement company, for example, said he, his, his company does business in Bangladesh, in Latin America, in North Africa. He's perfectly used to political crisis. There's nothing new for him to worry about. It's the three generations of a company. He, he can deal with a bit of political uncertainty. That's not a problem. What's a problem is when the law doesn't seem to be respected. So he said, you know, when there's a break of the rule of law, when you can't trust that the laws are going to be respected, then your trust in the whole system breaks and you, and you rush away. So in his case, he was worried that if Catalonia were to become an independent country, then international tax deals would no longer be respected. In the case of other companies, such as banks and insurance companies, they were just worried that customers and those who had assets in, in their financial institutions were just pulling them out so quickly that they would be badly damaged if they didn't move and go to somewhere safer. And what about the, the popular mood? Clearly, the issue has aroused passions on both sides. Are, are some consumers taking that out in the form of boycotts of businesses? Yes. So another set of businesses who are worried, whether you're a hotel owner or the producer of Cava, the sparkling wine from this bit of Spain, they worry that other Spaniards especially are fed up with Catalonia, fed up with the political and constitutional crisis. And one way that they express their anger, the other Spaniards, is to boycott their products. And so I spoke to lawyers who were describing a manufacturer of baby products, as well as a sweets maker, and the others that I mentioned who fear that they are being hurt by boycotts from the rest of Spain. In addition to that, you have foreigners, those from Turkey, Egypt, China, the rest of Europe, who like to come and buy property in Barcelona, and they're staying away too. So the housing development and those sorts of property deals have also fallen quiet. And how much hinges on these elections? Are they expected to help business confidence return? I think on balance, people expect the elections to be a little bit helpful. We think that the, the separatists who were so set on calling for independence are going to do a little worse in these elections. And therefore, the, the politicians who are more likely to be stable and respectful of the constitution will, will be in office and therefore there'll be some return of stability. That said, the elections in themselves don't solve everything. There's a large chunk of the Catalan population, the rural population especially, who will still want to be independent. And so if you're a head of a bank or a subsidiary of a foreign insurance company or something like that, you're not going to move back just because of these elections. So they won't solve everything in one sweep. Adam Roberts, thanks very much. Thank you. Finally. When I found you, I saw raw, untamed power. 
beyond that. Something truly special. The biggest film of the year opens this week. The Last Jedi is what feels like the 208th episode of the Star Wars saga, the world's most successful film franchise. But are remakes the way to stem box office declines? Gaddy Epstein, our media editor, is here in our studio for the first time. Welcome, Gaddy. Uh, it's good to be here. So, Gaddy, box office not doing well in the US. Are, are remakes the only hope? Well, to clarify, box office is doing okay as a headline figure. So it'll get close to $11 billion or maybe even over $11 billion this year, which is down from last year, but, but still up over time because they keep raising ticket prices. So you know, ticket prices are more than 50% higher now than 15 years ago. The problem is that fewer people are going to the cinema. So the average American used to go to movies about 5.1 times a year in 15 years ago. Now that's down to about, it'll be down to about 3.6 or 3.7 times a year. That means they pretty much go to event films, blockbusters, which tend to be sequels, remakes, uh, superhero films. So how is The Last Jedi expected to do? Are they expecting it to break records? I think there's uh, mixed predictions about whether, I mean, it'll definitely do well. The question is, will it do as well as The Force Awakens, episode 7 or 207 of of the Star Wars saga, which did, you know, $2 billion in business globally. Uh, it did very well. Nothing will stand in our way. I will finish what you started. This one is getting great buzz. You know, I, I think it's going to be a very good film. That could get people coming back to the theaters in the droves the way they did for Force Awakens. So. I would expect it will do uh, very well indeed. Whether it breaks records, and Force Awakens set a ton of records two years ago, most of which still stand. Beyond episode 209, presumably, I mean, what else is, is there in the box in Hollywood? What, what have we got to look forward to next year? Well, exhibitors are very excited, uh, the cinemas, that is, are very excited about mostly about films from 2019, more than to next year. I think next year they're kind of expecting a flat year over this year. And that and I'm sure there will still be, you know, Avengers films and those kinds of films. But in 2019, there will be uh, the first of uh, several Avatar sequels. Uh, so you're going to start seeing Avatar movies. There's actually going to be four in like five years, at least according to Jim, Jim Cameron's plan. Uh, they're very excited about that. Uh, next year, there will be a Han Solo movie, another Star Wars film. And then uh, in the 2020s, we will see another Star Wars trilogy to be done by the director the writer-director of, of this episode, The Last Jedi. That's all sequels, Gaddy. It's nothing new. Well, I'm sure there will be surprise hits, just like this year. We had uh, Get Out, which did very well. Uh, it, the thriller based on the Stephen King story, which uh, was one of the top ten films this year. It was the only one that wasn't a sequel, remake, or superhero movie. Gaddy Epstein, for your coming in, grateful we are. Thank you. I don't know how to respond to you this week, <laughs> it turns out. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. And do please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.